everybody, welcome to the Proper Tools Podcast, the only podcast where you can listen to a couple of tools just sitting around and talking shop. I'm Jake, a woodworker with an underwater basement, and as always, I'm joined by Sean, who doesn't even have a basement. Thank you, Jake, and welcome everybody. This episode's topics were curated by the finest podcast sommelier in France. We'll be discussing some shop safety, whether design is subjective or not, and what happens when you throw a running CNC out of an airplane. Jake, what's going on this week? Have you gotten any shop time? Uh, Yeah, just a little bit. You know, um, the other week I finished up my subscribe sign. So now when people watch my YouTube videos, they'll see my subscribe sign in the background and hopefully they'll know what to do. What do you want them to do when they see it? Like. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> that's intuitive. I hope it's clear. I hope that's clear. That's what I'm going for. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't subscribe. I know it says subscribe, but that means like. It's, okay. It's, okay. How about you? Building anything? Um. Yeah. Yesterday I built a uh, a spline jig. Built oh. that over over my lunch break. Um. You know, just threw together some particle board. Uh, I'm doing another photo box, and I tried wanted to do miters this time instead of box joints or dowel joints. And uh, you got to put you know splines in there, of course. So. I whipped that together over lunch. I uh, <clears throat> I thought a lot of our friend Joe from Shepherd's Workbench. Oh yeah, because I was in a big hurry, and I and I thought, you know, he said when he was in a big hurry, he lost a couple of fingers. So um, yeah, yeah, that's that's good to remember. <laughs> Probably remember that one forever. Oh yeah. So whenever a power tool was running, I was taking my time. But when I was walking across the garage or grabbing something, it was super fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> Got to make up that lost time. Yeah, exactly. Like I was safe when the tool was on. I will not be safe when the tool is off. That's right. When it comes <laughs> to yanking the uh, extension cord down from the ceiling reel, you know, that was fast. Right, right, right. In next week's episode, we talk about how Sean tripped and fell in his shop. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Talk about why his jaw is wired shut and he's not on the podcast anymore. Uh, it'll just be me talking. You know, like, so, Sean, how are you doing? <laughs> he's doing fine. <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. Oh, man. So when you're working in the shop and we're talking about shop safety and, uh, you know, being mindful of those tools, do you use a blade guard? I don't. I mean, I I would like to. <clears throat> My problem with the blade guard is that I use a crosscut sled a lot. And right. You, I mean, unless you specially design it, which which I've actually thought about doing, a normal crosscut sled, you can't use a blade guard with it. Um, right. So and then it just becomes one more thing that you're swapping out when you're going from to using a crosscut sled to not using it. Right. You know? You got to save time somewhere. Yeah. Got to. <laughs> We're already slowing down when we use the tool. I mean, you don't need no <laughs> guards. Um, but I do, I mean, I really would like to, especially if it's got dust collection. I think that'd be really nice. Yeah. Um, That's when I use mine. I, I rarely put my guard on also. Um, I just feel like it's in the way. And that isn't to say, I'm not one of the people that thinks having the guard on there is more dangerous. I just, it truly is just in the way. Um, the guard that came with my saw, a lot of times if there's a thinner uh, cutoff, if I'm ripping a board and it's, it's thinner, 
it'll get stuck inside the guard. And that's no good because then I got to shut the saw off to get it out of the guard. And so, yeah, I do the same thing. I tend not to put it on unless I'm cutting up a bunch of plywood, in which case I will put it on because it does have really good dust collection. Okay. Yeah, mine, the one that came with my saw does not have dust collection. It's just purely for safety. Right. Um, <clears throat> and I have used it a couple times, um, and I don't have anything against it. It, it is kind of, it seems really rickety, but I guess, <laughs> you know, that's just kind of the way they are sometimes. Good enough to get to the lawyers. It's good enough for <laughs> exactly. everyone else. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Check the box. Do you use a riving knife? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've always got that on there. Okay. Um, Same. I always leave my, I never take it out. Um, I used to take it out when I'd use my uh, zero clearance insert in my saw, but uh, I don't know. Last year sometime, I was look. I pulled the riving knife out, put in the uh, zero clearance insert and was like, you know what I could do? I could just hog out the back of this insert. It'd still be zero clearance where the blade is cutting and the riving knife will just pop right through. No problem. So that's what I did. I modified my zero clearance and so now I can use my riving knife no matter what. And I never removed that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't think I ever, I'm trying to think of why I ever have removed it. And I can't even think of a reason why. Um, yeah. Other well, than- I removed mine because on my Grizzly, the guard has its own riving knife. So the guard okay. is actually the frame of the guard is, uh, you know, a thin piece of steel. And that is also the riving knife. So okay. you have to rip that out and then drop in the regular riving knife and then pull the riving knife out and put the guard back in. It's a bear. So <laughs> that was a grizzly joke. Oh, wow. <laughs> Pun intended. Sorry. Sorry. I missed that. So I even left my riving knife on when I was raising the blade up through my brand new crosscut sled to make that initial cut. <laughs> and then my crosscut sled started to levitate off the table saw. And I thought, this isn't normal. What's happening? Right. You know, so, well, if I keep going, it'll just drop down. You know, that's usually the best choice with power tools. If it's, if it's not going, just keep forcing it. Right. right just push harder. <laughs> just need some more more force. That's right. <laughs> what about gloves? I've heard people say um, gloves are a bad idea, mainly because um, should you come in contact with a like a spinning drill bit or a spinning blade that it can grab the glove and just pull you further into the tool. So what are your what are your thoughts there? I think you should never wear gloves when you're using power tools, if you can help it. Um, I think there are some exceptions here and there, but for the most part, um, I, I would not, I would not wear gloves if I could help it. Uh, we actually had an incident at work where, uh, a guy, he was cutting, um, a bunch of large holes in uh, a couple sheets of MDF for tool storage for our CNC machines. And so he was using the bridge port as a drill press and a bridge port is a manual mill, uh, works as a drill, great as a drill press, but also for cutting steel on a mill. And so he had this big, big hole cutter saw on it and was cutting these like two, two and a half inch holes. And 
a Bridgeport has a brake on it. Uh, it's got such a big motor and a gearbox that when you turn it off, it'll spin for quite a while, depending on what your gear or speed settings are. And so there's actually a brake. You can reach up towards the top of it with your left hand and pull this brake down and slow down the, the motor. Well, he was cutting a bunch of holes and went to do that, but his hand passed by that hole saw. And since he was wearing gloves, he had been told not to wear gloves, but he chose to put them back on. Uh, that hole saw grabbed his hand and wound wound his hand into the Ow. into the drill or the the hole saw. Um, it broke his hand in a couple places. Oh man! See, yeah, it, that's bad. Like it's it's not just a cut, but like you can break bones. Oh, it 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 was a good thing he had the order of operations where he turned it off, went to reach for the brake, and got his hand stuck. Then, had it been before he turned it off, I mean, it would have ate his arm. Oh man! Yeah. Wow. And, and so, that's, that's, that's the whole point of why you shouldn't wear gloves. Right. Um, right. I agree with you, you know, rare cases. Um, sometimes when I'm using a handheld drill, but it's usually when I'm drilling like two by four, something that's really splinter prone. Yeah. I think when you're using a handheld drill, especially like a battery powered drill, I just, I wouldn't worry too much about it because those just don't have much rotating mass. So if they catch your hand, it's not going to be that bad. And now if you're using a drill press, that's got a lot more rotating mass. It's going to tend to grab you a little bit more. Uh, Of course, obviously saws um, and things like that. So yeah, if you're going to wear gloves, definitely wear tight fitting gloves. (laughs) Wear the the loosest gloves you can find. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's another factor, right? Um, So, yeah, I definitely would avoid avoid gloves. (laughs) So how about headphones? I know a lot of uh, people are sponsored by, you know, noise canceling (laughs) headphones and things or or earbuds specifically. Um, Yeah, I yeah, I'm not crazy about it, to be honest. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, ear protection, that's one thing, but I don't know if I want my mind that far away from the power tools, you know, like I'm okay. good with me. Well, maybe I should put it this way. I mean, cause I will listen to music in the background just in my, in my garage, but right. I wouldn't do a podcast. Cause I feel like that's for me, <laughs> I would get too mentally engaged. Don't listen I, to them, everybody. <laughs> that's right. Listen to us. <laughs> Look, we are anything but mentally stimulating. So proper tools is fine. <laughs> When you're working, that's, yeah, that's my bit on that is, you know, as long as it's not taking your mind away too far from what you're doing, I don't know. Yeah. I, I listen to podcasts all the time. Um, that tends to be my go-to sometimes I listen to music, but I, I often listen to podcasts. Uh, I, I can see what you're, what you're saying. I've kind of found that podcasts actually tend to, to, to ground me, keep me focused. I don't know why that is. I, I don't have a good explanation for that. Um, I will say on occasion, sometimes I, I will turn them off because I can't think I can't solve a problem. If I'm trying to figure out how something should be working or why it isn't working. Um, sometimes the podcast gets into my head and it's like, stop, stop talking. Let me think for a minute. Um, but as far as working with 
tools and stuff, I tend to find that I kind of tune that out and I'm focused on the tool. Okay. Well, we talked about uh, forcing things into a machine when the machine doesn't want to <laughs> take it as fast as you want to push it. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, some issues with my planer last week and this week too. Um, this story does not end in disaster. Just, you know, just so you know. Huh, um, yeah. So I was milling up some uh, walnut a few weeks ago and I've got the orange rigid planer that the one you can get from Home Depot, nothing fancy. Okay. And, um, it, I, I'm, I'm just not crazy about it. It's, it's, it's crazy loud and it just takes forever. And mine's on a roll around cart. That's, it's, it's like a moving dolly. So it's about four inches off the ground. So the whole time uh, I'm using it, I'm, I'm bent over and it's just an uncomfortable process. But regardless, when I would, uh, you know, put the piece of walnut through there, a lot of times it would, it would stop. I mean, the planer would keep running, right. but the board would not, would stop proceeding through it because yeah. the, roller, the rollers were slipping. Yep. And I was just getting so frustrated. So I uh, reached out to uh, a couple of guys that I know locally um, that I follow on Instagram. And I was looking through one of them's feed, you know, looking at all the tools in his background. I'm like, what kind of planer does he have? And <laughs> he's got the same one I do. So I messaged him and I'm like, Hey man, do you like, does your planer ever stall out? Like I can't, it's just stopping. And I'm taking like just thinnest little skim cuts off of this walnut and it's still taking forever. And, um, he said, uh, he said, give it a good waxing and check the rollers. Make sure the rollers are clean. Yeah. And I'm like, all right. So, you know, I back it down a little bit. I, you know, get a paper towel in there and kind of dust it off and eventually got through my milling. Um, mm -hmm. So fast forward to just a couple of days ago, I'm doing it again with some mahogany and mahogany's really, it's shavings are real kind of fuzzy, I guess. Okay. Um, so the, the planer started slipping right away. I mean, I couldn't get anything through there. Um, <laughs> And I'm like, okay, so theoretically, if I crank it down more, the rollers will have more <laughs> pressure on the board. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> but I'm taking a bigger cut. Um, that that was, you know, of course, a foolish idea. So I remembered the guy's name is Paul, Paul Sierra. Um, so I remembered what Paul said. So this time I shut it down and I cranked it all the way up as high as I could get it. And I really got in there with some, some, I just used damp paper towels. I didn't have any mineral spirits or anything. Okay. Um, waxed the beds and everything, got the rollers as clean as I could. Um, you know, turned it on and off a couple of times just to cycle the rollers. So I made sure I got all the surface yeah, area. The whole thing. And cranked it back down. And I mean, that made a huge difference. Everything was just going straight through, no slipping, no nothing. Right. So I, th I think it was more the rollers than waxing the bed, to be honest, but, um, it just changed everything. So, yeah, those rollers, um, they definitely start picking up all like the, you know, the resins and pith and all that stuff off of, off of wood. Um, I usually clean mine with some mineral spirits. 
mm-hmm. to keep them running at, at, at peak performance. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and between that and waxing the bed, uh, that should make a big difference. Yeah, it did. So I, I messaged him and I'm like, dude, that changed everything. Like, thanks so much for that tip. Um, he's at, uh, PC Woodshop, I think is what his Instagram handle is. Um, yeah, talking- he just, uh, followed me back on Instagram today. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 I told him about the podcast. I said, Hey, you're getting a shout out because of that planer tip. <laughs> so, so you gotta uh, come listen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, right. I'll talk more about him when we do our recommendations. Um, okay. But, uh, okay, so what else? That was uh, my planer story. Oh, I wanted to ask you, your planer, I know you've got the DeWalt. Yeah. Are the rollers bigger, or how big diameter are they? Because I, I would think that would help the situation. That's a good question. Uh, as soon as you started saying that, I was like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I've never used a different planer, to be honest. But um, I would, if you had to estimate, they're, they're probably two inches or something. Um, man, I, I'm racking my brain trying to remember what they even look like. I haven't really looked at them real, real hard. Just kind of reach under there with that mineral spirits towel and clean them off. Huh. And that's it. So, you know, there's um, blades in there, right? Uh, there is what? <laughs> Maybe I should have been turning it off. I usually have it running. So that was the other. That's not funny. Don't do that, anyone. (laughs) That was the other tip Paul gave me. He's like, watch out for the blades because they're super sharp. He's like, I, I, I didn't even know I cut myself until I started seeing blood. So be careful. Yeah. Okay. So on the on your planer, when you change the blades, do you have to reset them and everything? He's like, I don't, I don't know because I haven't done that yet. Oh, okay. Okay. So nice, really cool thing about the Dewalt. is that the the blades you buy for it? First of all, the negatives. The negative of the Dewalt is that the blades that go into it cannot be sharpened, and the reason they can't be sharpened is actually a positive, which is that they have little dowel pins in them, and when you put the blades into the Dewalt onto the head, they're already aligned perfectly and where they need to be, so they're set with just the right set. Um, on all three blades and they are reversible. They have two sides. Um, but what's cool about the DeWalt um, on top of that is they include a tool to undo all the screws for that uh, blade. But the back of the tool is a, a magnetic pad. So you can lift the blades out with a magnet, pull them straight out, you know, just swing them around, put them back in the other way. If you want using the other side or pull them out, and put in a new one with the magnet if you're replacing them. That's cool. So you don't even really have to worry about touching the sharp edge. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love that planer. Um, I, the first, first time I used it, it was actually my uh, father-in-law's planer. Um, he had bought it forever ago and he had given me a whole bunch of, uh, rough sawn lumber. Uh, that was actually from a beam that was used in a pallet to ship a printing press to Detroit Free Press from Germany or something. Nice. And so it was just this ginormous beam that someone cut up. And so he gave me all this rough wood and this planer. And then he wanted the planer back. And I was like, well, I don't <laughs> want to spend 600 plus dollars on a planer, but what what else is there? So I, I bought it. 
<laughs> and it's fantastic. It's totally worth it. Good. Yeah. I've heard that uh, that's a really nice one. It, you know, it, we can call it consumer level. You know, it's not like a big giant floor standing it's model. It's weird. It doesn't have a, in my opinion, it doesn't have a competitor um, in its same category. So you have the lunchbox planers like you have. Uh-huh. And there's some various tiers of those, uh, obviously. And then you jump up to a more industrial style, which would have like four posts, one in each corner, um, like the big, and they're usually much larger. They usually move the bed and not the head. Uh-huh. Uh, so they're, they're much sturdier, much bigger, um, and then way more expensive, you know, thousand plus dollars. But the DeWalt kind of fits in the middle somewhere. Like it's kind of a combination hybrid of the lunchbox consumer planer and then the you know more robust industrial grade style. Right. And yours looks like it's uh, longer, I guess. Like the, the cutting area is longer than my lunchbox style. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the lunchbox is very short front to back. Yeah. Whereas the DeWalt is pretty long. I mean, it's a square. So right. it's almost a square. It's maybe two inches short of a square. But um, yeah, the, the width is the depth. And those so those rollers are pretty far apart, which helps with snipe or helps re- helps to reduce snipe. And then those the bed sticking out help reduce it even farther. Yeah. And so it does a really good job. It's very stable and it uses four threaded rods one on each corner to move it up and down so it stays very level and very very rigid doesn't mm-hmm. deflect very much cool and it'll so take that's, a, our, um, that's my sales pitch on the dewalt planer and it'll <laughs> accept everyone it takes a uh or it can take a uh, helical head too right yeah it's it's on my wish list to buy the helical head but the helical head actually costs as much as the planer Oh man. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the helical head is like four fifty or five hundred dollars, I wanna say. Okay. And the planer is, you know, on sale five hundred to six hundred bucks. Yeah. So it's almost the same price just for that helical head. Uh, now my boss has it and he swears by it. And you know, from what I've seen of them, I bet they're I'm I'm sure they're worth it. Yeah. If you have the money <laughs> to <laughs> buy it sponsors um, right well i don't know i don't know those guys sponsor too much you know they're pretty small companies so yeah you know i'm not sure how that works but i just buy blades they're 50 something dollars up you know for a set and i don't burn through them too much uh the only negative is they tend to get a chip a chip in them within the first two boards yep <laughs> but they're still sharp you just have a little line down your your part so yeah Yep, I get that too. Deal with it. It's rustic. <laughs> there you go. Character. <laughs> adds character. <laughs> I drop my blades on the concrete before I use them just for just to add character to the board. <laughs> Good. Good. But it's repeating character, right? It's it's, it's the repeating same. character. So yeah, so it's the same. Um and I consider that me yeah, a design feature. Okay. <laughs> now would that be subjective? Well, in that case, it might be. Okay. I think we're going to talk a little bit about design, uh, whether or not design is subjective or objective. Uh, 
I think in, in the case of me purposefully chipping my planar blades to add a texture, mm, that's probably going to be subjective. Yeah. I would say that's opinion based. Not the fact that it's repeating makes it character, just that it's character at all. I think that's where the opinion comes in. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That would actually be character. Um, Cause that, yeah, all that is just tends to be subjective. So if you're going, this is getting far away from actually chipping planar blades, but you know, the rustic look, getting the roughs on lumber uh, and leaving it roughs on or a hand hewn beam or something in your house, uh, whether or not that looks good, that's very subjective. Not everyone is into that. And I don't think you could definitively say that, you know, a hand hewn beam always looks good. Um, Someone who hand hews beams might get mad at me for saying that. I like a good hand hewn beam, but yeah, I know, <laughs> but but not if they're terrible at hand hewing beams. Then it exactly. may not look good, right? Right. Or yeah. if you have a ultra modern house, yeah, you know, and you put a hand hewn beam in there right next to your stainless steel and your black trim or something gonna not look very good is it is it the beam that doesn't look good or the the rest of the modern decor that doesn't look good that's back to being subjective (laughs) so So do you think there's ever a case where uh design can be objectively good or will it always be opinion based will it always be subjective uh it's hard it's hard to answer because i i think in some cases there is. I think there is such a thing as good design, which is not only aesthetics. Sometimes it can be function as well. Um, I don't think we tend to think of that as being subjective, like something either works well or it doesn't, or it can work mm. better. Um, but with specifically design, when it comes to aesthetics, um, there I think there's rules that can apply that can help encourage good design. Uh-huh. But at the same time, there's there's room to break those rules if you do it right. Um, typically, right. like, uh, you familiar with the uh, golden ratio? Yeah. Um, so that's, I think it's roughly 1.68 or something. Basically, yeah, something like that. What it means is um, um, we're typically like rectangles more than squares, things like that. And it, it, the golden ratio implies that the, the short side of the rectangle, say it's one, the long side's going to be 1.68 ish. And that applies to a lot of things in nature as well. Like uh, some people think even like the bones of your hand, like the the smallest section of your finger, Mm -hmm. the middle one compared to it is exactly the golden ratio, 1.68 times longer. Right. And all the way up your arm to your shoulder. So, I don't know how true that is, but the idea is that it's it's not just something we design with. It's something that we're surrounded by all the time in nature. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I think there are uh, a certain number of rules. Maybe, I don't want to call them rules, but like you said, guidelines, really, where we know just based on observation through nature and the world and and how people operate and react to certain things, um, mechanically how things fit together. I think we can put together a set of, of guidelines, 
possibly you could call them rules, where you know that if you do A, B, and C, objectively, that would be a good design. Now, one could argue, I think, that that doesn't look good sometimes, or someone may not like how that looks for their own personal reasons, but I think based on our you know studying something, we may be able to come up with guidelines of something that would be objectively, quote, good design. Right. And the whole reason we got here <clears throat> is recently the Discord logo changed. And Discord is a online community. It's mostly around gaming, is my understanding. Yeah, um, they're pivoting. So it used to be mostly around gaming, and now they're kind of pivoting to just, well, really everything else. <laughs> but it was mostly a communication platform, right? Yes. So Discord changed their logo, and I guess some people just went crazy. That's that's normal. People just people say they like change, but they really don't. And right. you you find that out when you go changing logos or colors or stuff. Oh so yeah. So there's this guy, um, can't remember his name, but we'll we'll link him in the in the show notes. But he is a, a logo design expert. Uh, did this great video reviewing the um, Discord. Uh, the new logo, comparing it to the last one. And one statement he made is that design is uh, not subjective, especially with regard to logos, because there are rights and wrongs when it comes to a logo design. So that's how we came to this discussion of is, is design ever subjective or is it not? Well, I think to his point, uh, in the video, uh, again, we'll have this link in the show notes if you want to go check it out. But he talks about the original design of this logo and how there are, you may look at it and say, oh, that's a cool logo. Well, that's a good logo. But if you dive into it, there are some issues with the logo itself that he points out. Uh, in the long run, you'll you'll have issues with. And that is uh, basically the 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 background of the logo was this kind of purple blue tint and then there was a chat icon and in the middle of the chat icon was their character I, I forgot this their character's name but this it's a it's a gaming controller it looks like a face kind of and it's a it's a negative so it's a cutout in this white chat bubble and so the first thing he points out is discord is a uh, communication platform. So the chat bubble is actually kind of redundant to to point out in the logo. And in some cases, maybe, you know, maybe that's useful when a, a company is just starting out when no one knows what they actually are. But moving forward, once people know who you are, now it's a redundant thing. You know, none of the major car brands use a car in their logo. You know what Ford is. They don't have to have a picture of a, you know, a Mustang. And then it says Ford inside. And you're like, oh yeah, that's the Ford logo. It's a car. <laughs> you know, everyone knows that. So we kind of pointed that out. And then the other thing, uh, there's an issue with negative space where you have a cutout in this white chat bubble. And some of the um, the features on this character are, are sharp and very detailed. And it looks interesting, but you it's difficult to print or to put on different... Uh, different media, you know, print that out and put it on a t-shirt. It kind of, you lose some of the detail and it doesn't look right. Right. And, and same, same with shrinking it down for a small screen. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the, the features get so small that as you shrink it down, they go away. There's just not enough, uh, you know, the pixels go away. They can't mm-hmm. you know, resolve those things. So, and we can talk about the font too, but that the, the key point that I, I read into that was there are things we've learned about design, learned about good logo design as an example that make a logo easy to replicate, to print, to put on various media, and to be recognizable. And the new Discord logo achieves all of those things better than the first one. And if you were to look through for those filters, it is more printable, it is more clear, it's easier to understand, it's not redundant, Uh, just different things like that. So that was kind of his point quick summary of the video there now what about um like furniture design so let's say you're making something with dowel joints and the dowels are going to be exposed of course and you have the space to do either an odd amount or an even amount so i don't care if it's three or if it's nine it doesn't matter what like what direction would you go if you know to do an odd amount or an even amount Odd. It should be odd. So why? Why do you say odd? I see. I don't know. It's one of those weird things where I don't actually know why, but I remember learning that. Okay. And I was working in a restaurant and I was learning how to cook in the restaurant. I used to be a dishwasher and one boring, wintry, blustery day, (laughs) no one was there. And one person walked in, ordered a sandwich, and I went and got the chef. And he's like, you can make a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Dry your hands off and get some bread. Yeah, he's like, it's just a Reuben. You don't know how to make a Reuben? And I was like, I know how to wash dishes really good. And (laughs) so anyway, so that's kind of where that started. But moving from there, um, I, I started taking over the desserts. And we talked about... When you're plating a meal, um, in particular desserts, you're trying to make it look extra nice. You try to do things in odd numbers. So you'll see this in restaurants and you always wonder why, you know, you ordered some, um, you know, fancy uh, hors d'oeuvre or appetizer or something. And it came with three of those things. You're like, well, this isn't easy to share. Well, try putting four on there and just look at it. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look good. And I just remember the chef saying, like, always, always be be an odd number. You know, if three is not enough, then you have to go to five uh, or something like that. And every time I tried to break that rule and, you know, put a put an even number, it just doesn't look good. All right. So I'm I'm going to challenge that because I'm obsessed with Fibonacci numbers. I'm going to okay. say that it's not because it's odd. It's because threes and fives are Fibonacci numbers. OK. And. We uh, um, subconsciously love, the, again, like this is, goes back to the golden ratio. Fibonacci's are all same thing. Five is exactly 1.68 something times as big as three. Right. So, now of course, the next one would be eight. So if you could put eight strawberries on that thing, I don't know. You know, when you get to quantities that large, so it does start to change the look of the plate (laughs) it does you know like if you had seven eight or nine 
it might, yeah, it might would probably actually look better to have eight because you're going to have some, some rows there, some design there, and you're going to have an oddball just hanging out and it's not mm-hmm. going to look great. <laughs> okay. You got to eat that strawberry and get rid of that ninth strawberry. <laughs> Ship the eight. Yeah. Well, Fibonacci, he made an appearance on the Proper Tools podcast, everyone. That's about time. He's, <laughs> I'm sure he'll be back. We so, can only hope, right? We can only hope. We'll have to dive deeper into that for sure. Yeah, it's it's. there's some cool stuff in there um, as it relates to design. And it's it's a good way, even like space planning a room, if you can lay things out in, you know, that, that ratio. Um, I think, again, like we subconsciously like that and i think if you can apply some basic rules based on fibonacci or golden ratio then you can get awfully close to something that is going to be really pleasing to the eye and then from that point you know you can just do some minor tweaking to get it exactly where you want it i thought of another exception chairs chairs yeah i don't most of the chairs that i think look good they have four legs (laughs) <laughs> i'm trying to think of a good three-legged chair uh like a stool for milking a cow that's probably got three legs yeah but i mean it looks fine i guess you know <laughs> all the all the best chairs have four legs so there's exception to the rule but your office chair with the wheels on it like how many spokes are down there with the wheel at each end good question one, two, three, not a number. I think it's it's five. Yep. See? Five Fib- spokes. Fibonacci. Yeah. But ten wheels, because there's, like, the casters have two sides to them. There's <laughs> sure. ten, ten little casters. <laughs> One's actually fake. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> and there's <laughs> one one post in the middle of the whole thing. Yeah, there you We're go. We're all over the place. <laughs> That's right. Anything else on this? No, I... I think it's just worth keeping in mind that I think there are um, good design guidelines to to think about when you're creating something, um, but you can break the rules. You don't have to follow the rules. I mean, what you think looks good doesn't have to be what everyone thinks looks good. Um, now, towards the rules, you know, maybe you want to consider, uh, you know, designing something at a certain scale like that that 1.68 scale if you're creating a tabletop or something like that. But again, you can cheat that a little bit using it as a starting point or a jumping off point. And from there, change it a little bit and make it your own. Yeah, definitely. And chairs are, nor- I mean, uh, tables <clears throat> are normally longer, definitely longer than they are tall, usually wider than they are tall. And right. they have a rectangle tabletop. But an end table oftentimes is it's square, first of all, the, the top is square, yeah. and it's way taller than it is wide or long. So right. it's, you know, I think the world would be kind of boring and dumb if all of our end tables were really short and rectangle, you know? Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen my Wilhelm table? Yeah, I don't think it's short and dumb. It looks like a miniature dining table because <laughs> it's 
It's it's basically the same scale as a dining table, but it's small. Well, I had in my mind really small, like something that's like a foot off the ground. It's a foot and a half off the ground. Okay, so I'll see, there you go. <laughs> Broke the rules a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, but in all honesty, that table is weird. The Wilhelm table is an odd table. Um, it was sort of meant to fit a space. And I, in my head, I was imagining like a side table slash coffee table or a small coffee table. Um, but the way I made it, it actually, I think, should have been wider, should have been closer to a square than as you know narrow and long as it actually is. Because mm-hmm. um, in the space that it lives in right now, it's just it's it doesn't look bad, but it doesn't look right either. Like it's something it looks like a miniature dining table. That's, <laughs> I think if it was a little wider, it would look like it belonged as a coffee table. Okay. Yeah, I think that there's I think we could talk about this a lot and we, we probably should because I think <laughs> I'd like to revisit like some basic ideas or basic um, ratios, things like that and design. Yeah, we'll have to. I so I bought the um, woodworkers pocket book woodworker. I don't know what they call it. The one not the woodwork, not the I, I did buy that also. Uh, Woodworker's Notebook, go on Amazon, it's 10 bucks, go buy it. Uh, I wrote it. It's a bunch of dots. <laughs> uh, no, the the um, uh, anarchist workbench people, Lost Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lost Press, they have the anarchist wor- workbench books uh, series. Uh, one of them is a pocket reference book. And... It has all kinds of like equations and formulas for calculating various things or lookup tables, but it also has a bunch of pages dedicated to uh, furniture and like ratios or common sizes that furniture should be. Mm, so yeah. it has like chairs, how tall, how high off the ground should the, the seat be? How high should the back be? And these are all very generic shapes. It's just showing you like a rough chair. Here's kind of where to start. And that's super interesting because that is one thing I kind of ran into when making my side tables or I, I did build a chair once um, and I was trying to figure out how tall it needed to be. And there are some some rough rules for how how that should be. Yeah, same here. I did a, a it's kind of a built in toy box, I guess. So okay. it was, you know, basically a long bench that goes wall to wall under a window. Um, but we were going to have a, you know, like a long cushion put on top so you could sit on it if you wanted. Right. So yeah, I didn't want to just make something up. So I went around measuring a bunch of chairs and benches in my house and I was yeah. like, okay, it looks like about 18 inches is where this needs to be. Yeah. So, you could do that too. Or you go buy that book, but I mean, I either works fine too. <laughs> I I did measure a bunch of chairs and and kind of go from there. But um, and that kind of goes back to ergonomics. I actually uh, when I was going to school, we had a a class on ergonomics. Um, This is getting away a little bit away from design, but there's a I guess it tells kind of a reason why some design is the way it is. And so in our class on ergonomics, we looked at, you know, literally 
they met, you know, I had a book with a bunch of different dimensions of people <laughs> and how many, what percentile each, each person was, how high off the ground or how long, how much distance there was from the floor to the center of a person's knee if they were standing up. And then you could use that and compare that to, you know, uh, how many people there are in the world and look at different percentiles. You know, the 50th percentile is what you might want to target unless you only want to target tall people, things like that. You know, so, so these dimensions, these 18 inches for a seat height, that's based on uh, on the average height of a human being. Right, right. Yeah, that stuff's neat. Like even uh, stair treads. Like if, if, if the rise and the run were the same, so it was basically a 45 degree angle, it would be very uncomfortable and awkward staircase. Yeah. Th- those are out there, but they're usually cause it's, that's kind of all they could do, but right. Yeah. 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 They're yeah. Staircases is, is, is very interesting because of that. If you've ever walked on a staircase that was, uh, like a very short rise, very long run. It's just really odd. Yeah, I hate like like at a uh, at a park or something when it's yeah. Going you'll up a gradual often find hill. them at you'll find them at parks often. Um, I, I'm I'm I think some of that is just due to accessibility, um, but other times you know it's just something that it's kind of interesting how difficult that is to walk on. Yeah, and I don't like it because I like to alternate my steps. Right. So when I'm constantly doing like just my left foot to go up, uh huh, I hate it. Yeah, you're like, this isn't <laughs> this isn't good. This isn't right. Yeah, I'm getting an uneven workout on my legs. Yeah, yeah, it's all stuff that uh, is worth, definitely worth paying attention to. I mean, uh, you know, as an engineer, I have to pay attention to a lot of this stuff all the time. I mean, I design prosthetics, so. <laughs> Considering, you know, the height of people and, and how they walk on stairs and sit in chairs is, is all very important. But uh, I think that's that is where a lot of design theory or design rules come from. Mm-hmm. Things we found that actually work. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> so I have a one of those big craftsman tool cabinet things like the like the mechanics tool chest kind of thing. Okay. And it was designed to have casters on the bottom, which is great. So you can roll it around. Right. Um, however, it was pretty much the only space where I could put my CNC. Okay. So I had to pull it off from the wall just a little bit to get it up there. Um, but it it's it's fine. It works. It's stable until the, the cutting head moves really fast. Because when it moves really fast, the whole tool chest will kind of lurch a little bit because it's on wheels. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, I could I could probably write some G code to make it run back and forth, and the whole thing would like just start just start moving <laughs> around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonder if I could get it to like just wheel around the garage or something. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this CNC machine is now mobile. It's taken over the world. Yes. Yeah. It's going to start moving around and using that uh, momentum mass inertia. All those other so, big engineering words. The first time, first couple times I did that, I was like, oh no, like I wonder if I'm losing accuracy or anything. But, you know, it only does that when it's not cutting, right? Because it only moves super fast. 
when it's not engaged. Right. And then I thought, well, I, I mean, I don't think it would lose accuracy because everything, like the entire thing is, is moving. I mean, yeah, everything's like, moving together. Yes. So the, and, even the workpiece, which is, is strapped down. So in fact, it actually, if you lose accuracy, it could actually be because it's anticipating this isn't happening, but it, you know, in theory, in theory, it could lose accuracy because it's anticipating a harder stop than it's getting. So if you had the CNC machine on a not moving platform and that head moved quickly, you know, that energy uh, is being put into the frame of the CNC and then into the table and into the ground, into the earth. And that's pushing, you know, back, right? So there's deceleration code in there. So it's trying to slow down at the right speed so that the f- force and momentum that it builds up moving that head doesn't cause it to overpower its own motors. Now, when you put the whole thing on wheels, that's like a big shock absorber. So as the head approaches the stop point, as it slows down, that energy is dispersed into the frame, into the wheeled cabinet, and it starts moving around. Yes. Okay. Now, it'd be really interesting if if you had that CNC machine on the tool cabinet and it decided to take over the world and it started driving around, hopped on an airplane, take <laughs> off to go fly somewhere else to take over the world from a different perspective. Well, I think I think it is self-aware. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before it does figure out that it's on wheels and it can just leave when it wants to. Right. It may, for all I know, when I'm not here, it may just leave. I don't know. But it did get me thinking because it's all, there's lots of moving parts, but it is all self-contained, including the workpiece. So I thought, you know, can, like, what would happen if it was running a, a program, but not anchored and like either falling out of an airplane, which would be amazing, or even, <laughs> you know, in, in space, in a space station, like what what would it do? Uh, how would it behave? You know, I think it would still work to be honest, but I'm just curious <laughs> what right. sort of path it would take. And yeah, I got on that airplane and we knew it was taking over the world. So we chased it down, got on the airplane. We had a, there was a struggle, pushed it out the door, <laughs> fallen 30,000 feet. Um, would it still work? Uh, I mean, ignoring the kind of wind resistance pushing on the head uh, or buffeting or anything like that. Uh, yeah, I think it would, would it work fine. Um, or if the CNC machine was just in, in space floating around, I would think it would still work. Although again, that's where you might run into issues with that deceleration problem where because you have a particular deceleration program or, or profile set up, I do wonder if it could actually start to lose steps because um, it's a stepper motor on uh, on your particular machine. And on our most home CNC machines are not closed loop. So I'm not sure if that, if that makes sense where I'm going with that. But Yeah. Well, I know that dust collection would not be a problem if it was falling through the air. No, it would be more of a problem. How are you going to catch it all? <laughs> it would no, be I mean- everywhere. No, like, oh, how do I get all this dust (laughs) floating around now? Hey, my definition of dust collection is getting it off the workpiece. 
Where it goes <laughs> after that, I don't care. Right. If it's out, if it's yeah, if it's out of my garage, it's fine. <laughs> That's right. That's it's the not... only goal. Yep. So yeah, I, I think it. I think it would work falling out of an airplane. The super duper long extension cord, or a battery <laughs> pack, or something. I don't. I don't. I just. I can't think of why it wouldn't. Um, short of buffeting. I mean, obviously, you get different air pockets buffing it around. I think that's when it could start to lose lose some steps. Yeah, and if it got into a, a pretty severe spin, then it may not be able to. The, the gantries may not be able to move back and forth as well as they should. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Buffeting or yeah. If it was starting to spin that, that force, uh, centripetal force would start to pull on different parts of the machine and, and that could throw it off as well. For sure. Hmm. I wonder how long it would take for it to like come apart from the, the wind resistance. It depends how well you put it together. <laughs> Mine would hit the ground, and then there would be a, a, a giant crater left over, and a perfect CNC at the bottom of the crater. Okay, I that's figured how, you'd say that. Yeah, that's how well I put it together. I used Allen wrenches on it. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Did you torque it? Torque those screws? Sure, I did. <laughs> Elb- elbow torque. They have been torqued. I can't. I can't promise they've all been torqued at the same amount. Right. <laughs> hey, that counts. They didn't, they didn't say how much. Yeah. I go by the, uh, I, I turn the screw and I'm like, ah, I, uh, that's probably torqued. Feels good. <laughs> so I was thinking about this. What if the CNC was on a space station, but not like not attached. It's just floating in free space. Um, no real wind resistance. Cause it's, you know, still. So, I'm sure it would kind of wobble around a bit as the gantry moves, but think about the the spinning router. Like at what point do you think that would maybe cause the machine to rotate a little bit? So I was just thinking about this actually. Um, we were talking about the the airplane thing and mentioned the space. Ignoring the router just for a moment, I think. The whole thing would move around, but it would always come back to the same spot. You know, if it was outside the space station, of course. If it was in in the air, things are different. But if there, if it was in a pure vacuum, um, just co- conservation of energy. As I hope that's the right term, right? <laughs> conservation of energy. That would be that if the gantry moved to the left, uh, and there's nothing holding the system down, the gantry would try to move to the left. Well, the bed would move to the right. Well, then when it went back to the right, the gantry would move right, the bed would move left, and it would be back at back where it started because no energy was really, you know, it, it all moved together, right? Yeah. So you're thinking that, okay, so you're, let's say that we run a circle program. Just It just makes one circle mm-hmm. that if it did wobble, it would end up right back where it started. Right. What if it was asymmetrical that the pattern that we run? I I still think it would end up back where it started because you're still coming back right as far as you went left. Yeah, if as long come, as, I mean, as long as the gantry went back to where it started, right? You know, regardless of what it drew, if it went back to where it started, then the net force, if you were to draw like free body diagram on all that stuff, it should zero out, so it should come back back to zero. 
Now, back jumping back here, if you had the uh, the spindle on the router on, uh, it's gonna slowly start to spin. <laughs> <laughs> That's For what sure. I was hoping. Uh, <laughs> I think it would take a while, depending on the size of your router. Do you have like a, a full size router on yours or a smaller spindle? No, it's a spindle. It's only a quarter inch collet. It's the largest collet. Okay. Um, it's it's the equivalent of a, a palm router. Oh, like okay. The, like the most of them come with that that Dewalt one. Yeah, the Dewalt. So my it's not a yeah. it's not a Dewalt though. It's a gray one. I can't remember the brand. <clears throat> hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think eventually it would just start to spin, but it, it might take a while because again, that rotating mass of a router is not particularly significant. Uh, relative to the weight and mat or the mass of the CNC machine itself. So I think it would take a little while before the, uh, yeah, that rotating mass of the spindle overcame the non-rotating or, you know, uh, mass Floating. of the CNC. <laughs> yeah. But the spindle does have mass. So math tells us that at some point it will start to spin the the whole machine. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And then eventually it, it should go into equilibrium where the whole thing is, well, would it eventually, if, would it eventually hit 30,000 RPM? <laughs> Man, I hope so. Um, well, it'd be relative. No, it would just go faster and faster for forever because I think the spindle is going to spin at 30,000 RPM relative to the shell of the router that energy is being input into the shell of the router causing the cnc machine to spin faster and faster and faster but i think relative that spindle will always be spinning thirty thousand rpm so it will always be adding it will always be adding in more energy because you're inputting energy into the system by way of this magical extension cord wireless power extension cord because <laughs> you're adding it you're adding in power to the system which could actually be why it doesn't go back to zero when the gantry moves and thought about uh, that but i don't think it would keep infinitely getting faster and faster because then at some point the spindle would actually be then going the other direction no because i think you're going to spin that spindle the 30,000 rpm and eventually the shell of the spindle will also be spinning at 30,000 rpm but the spindle inside will be spinning at 30,000 rpm relative to the shell still I know, but then if the whole enclosure starts gets up to thirty one thousand RPMs, then the spindle, relative, yeah, relative to the space station, is now going at thousand RPMs the other way. No, I think it'd be going like sixty, be faster. Oh, because the whole CNC is going to spin the same direction. Yeah, as the, the whole thing's okay, spinning. I was, I was thinking they were going opposite. You're spinning the router faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I was thinking they were contra rotating because I got the gantries in my head when the gantry moves, right. The whole enclosure is going to kind of shimmy to the left a little, right? Uh, it would seem to move the other direction on earth because there's a, a force vector pushing back on the outside of that shell, causing that shell to not rotate. You know, there's a, there's a rotation moment pushing mm-hmm. on the shell of the router, rotating the shell in the opposite direction as the spindle, as the spindle speeds up. Now that 
cancels out, obviously, because the shell of the spindle isn't spinning on Earth. Um, that hits zero, and that's why we only go to 30,000 RPM. Are you sure they would spin the same direction? Because think about if you turn it on and you, you grab the bit, you apply friction to the bit, it's going to want to spin the enclosure the other way, right? The, the machine, the, the whole CNC machine, not the router body. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> now I'm really not sure. I was very sure. Okay. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I was thinking of it backward, totally backwards. Because it, it already has friction because every system does. So there's resistance on the router bit and the router itself. Yeah, so if it went the other way to approach zero, then would it go negative? You're at, you're adding power into the system. I feel like yeah. So think think it. think about if you have a palm router and you set it on your bench and you turn it on, like it's gonna the whole enclosure is gonna rotate the opposite way as opposite the way, bit, right? The spindle. Yeah. No, you're right. I totally went totally the wrong way on that one. <laughs> <laughs> So it would then approach zero, zero RPM relatively because the shell, well, I don't know. It gets weird because you're, it's not like you're locking the bit in place. You know, you're adding energy into the system. So it might actually continue going more backwards. <laughs> I don't know. Well, hopefully there's someone who knows their uh, d- uh, dynamics and stuff out there and they can just. Right, right in and be like, guys, quit talking about this. I thought this was they, a woodworking podcast. Yeah, they can We're doing engineering over there. They're punching their dashboard right now. And like, what are they talking about? These guys aren't engineers. Guys, it's late. It's past my bedtime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. So now that we've totally gone down that rabbit hole, you have any tool recommendations for this week? What's your tool of the week, Sean? Um, I have a, uh, uh, a person I want to recommend. I'm not going to call him a, a, a tool. That's our usual joke, but um, I don't know him well enough to do that. But <laughs> he's uh, the guy I mentioned earlier who helped me out with my planer, Paul Sierra. Um, he's on Instagram at PC Woodshop. Um, he also um, has a website where he sells the things that he makes. So be sure to check out his website, pcwoodshop.com. Um, he's got a lot of cool, uh, cutting boards, coasters, um, stuff like that. He's doing some epoxy things as well, which is looking really cool. Um, okay. but, uh, yeah, so big shout out to him. Big thank you for the the tips on my planer. Um, be sure to check out his Instagram and his website. Awesome. Yeah. I think he just followed me, uh, back or maybe I don't follow him. I don't know. I, I know I used to follow him, but. I think we're on Instagram together. So <laughs> good. Uh, he does some pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Cool. What do you All right. So, uh, yeah, my tool of the week is a tool and I don't know if you guys know, uh, much about cooking, but if you've heard of this guy, uh, his name is Elton Brown and he is a, uh, somewhat famous TV personality, uh, and cook chef. I think he calls himself a chef sometimes. Um, there's some arguments on what that word actually means. Certain people, I, I think he doesn't tend to describe himself as a chef. Anyways, don't want to get down that rabbit hole. Um, 
he's got a new book coming out soon too. Definitely check that out. But uh, what what got me thinking about him is ever since the the big lockdown part of the pandemic started, uh, him and his wife have been doing these periodic uh, YouTube live streams where they just hang out in their kitchen, they make dinner and drink and talk to the camera live. It's it's just great because you watch this guy in his his natural habitat, not the one that you see on TV, which is, you know, a character that he plays. It's scripted, it's planned, and this is not that. This is a real human being trying to make pizza. And <laughs> it's it's quite fantastic. Yeah, I like him. Even before the Iron Chef stuff, he had a a really good show and he would kind of touch on the geeky side of what's happening when you're cooking, like some of the chemical reactions. And yeah, like, well, that's what I like about him so much. I think um, I don't trust very many recipes on the the Internet. Like you, you try them out and some of them are just really weird, Uh, even (laughs) from somewhat reputable sources. They just don't come out right. And I don't really understand why that is. But every single one of his recipes that I've followed, even not word for word, just kind of used what I had, Mm -hmm. left out what I didn't, still works. And it's because he puts he comes at each recipe from a different perspective. And I've I've always found that to be very helpful. And I think that's really, um, I guess, helped me develop my cooking skills where now when I tend to cook, I, I tend to just use whatever knowledge I gleaned off of his show and put things together and know that it'll, this is probably right. Right. Ish. We're close enough. Close enough. <laughs> and that's why I'm really good at making mac and cheese from those nice blue boxes. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm just kidding, but I really do like craft mac and cheese sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's cool. He's cool. Um, yeah. I remember one, he was talking about, uh, making barbecue or something and kind of really went into why like some meat comes out tender and then uh-huh. sometimes it doesn't, you know, he talked about like the, like almost at the cellular level, like what's going on in the muscle fibers and yeah. why it comes out so tender and what's happening. I, I don't remember what it was, but I just remember, you know, thinking it was very interesting. I think he took a bunch of, uh, uh, Twizzlers and froze them. Yeah. And then he had this big block of ice and he's like, okay, you know, <laughs> the Twizzlers are the muscle fibers and the ice is whatever, whatever you need to cook away to make right. it, make it tender. Yeah. So if you go too far, they like fuse together or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember his whole bit on that, but yeah, he's great. Um, we, we've actually been to his live show. Um, oh, cool. Which was really awesome. It's you know, another totally different thing. It's not the character he plays on TV and it's not him in real life. It's a different character entirely, uh, which is, is quite amusing. So yeah, definitely go check out Alton Brown and his uh, quarantine kitchen. That's what they call it when they go live. Okay. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun. They just kind of hang out with their dogs in their, in their kitchen and drink and make dinner. Sounds good. <laughs> Um, and the discord logo video, I did find out that's, that's Will Patterson. I wanted to get his name out there. Okay. <laughs> to all, all 10 of our listeners. Yes. Well, those 10 matter. Right. They sure do. 
Uh, we'd, we'd name all of you off, but uh, we don't have time for that. We've already been going a little <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time. <laughs> Maybe next time. Someday. Someday we'll figure out how to do that. Yeah. Cool. All right, Jake. Well, we got another one in the can. It's about time. All right, everyone. Yeah, make sure you go uh, subscribe if you haven't already and check out the show notes. We'll have links to everything we talked about in this episode as well as our respective YouTube pages. So uh, we'll see you all next time. See ya. See ya.